This show was made at Access Radio Taranaki with help from New Zealand On Air. To find more local content, go to our website, accessradiotaranaki.com. Kia ora. My name's Rex Lovegrove. And welcome to Colours of the Heart, looking at life's challenges from a place of presence and compassion. Imagine there's no heaven. Again, welcome, welcome forward to Colours of the Heart. And I've got a, a pioneer in the house, John, and John's done some incredible things. And my whole facade, my whole purpose is to capture the, the nuances, the, the songs, the stories that um, gentlemen and women like John have done throughout their lives. And John, you've got a wonderful story. I, I understand that you've travelled through South America and, um, man, um, salute you in your effort so um john welcome would you like to say um, a little bit about yourself what you've what you've what you've done what you've achieved because you're because you're a pioneer bro <laughs> yeah well thank you rex yeah now well the journey through south america started in 1970 um the idea was to go from cape horn to uh, alaska by our own efforts so that it, nobody could do anything better than that um if we couldn't cycle, then we had to walk, and which is what we did in the latter stages before we got to Panama. Um, many things happened along along the way. Um, the wind, of course, was a major competitor down in Patagonia, um, and it blew at about 60 kilometres an hour all day. And so our best, our best mileage on that weather was about 15, 50 kilometres in the day where normally it would be upwards of 100. So it was pretty weary, pretty tiring, but one of the major things that happened at that stage was my rear wheel collapsed and uh, did a lot of damage to the bike, bent the gear changer. But when we got to the nearest town, which was a two days ride away, there in the shop, as far as way down the bottom of South America, was another gear changer, just like mine, which was able to replace it. Same me pedaling for thousands of kilometres with just a chain ring on the front. So um, the thing like that began to happen along the journey. Um, the times when we didn't have enough water, but we might have just have meat, which we could cook to survive on, and other times where we wouldn't have any meat, well, then we'd live on rice or porridge or something. So our diet was pretty poor along the way. Um, but there always seemed to be somewhere we at night where we could camp, get a bit of water if we needed it, or a bit of shelter if we needed it. And then finally getting off the plains, um, we got over into Chile. Um, I know before we got there, that's right, that rear wheel collapsed after about a thousand kilometres as well. Um, And uh, one day, this particular day, as I was walking along, um, because I was always behind the other two and they didn't know I'd stopped because the wind was so bad. some German tourists coming the other way stopped to talk to Ian and Gary and, and they saw me 
about a kilometre down the road. Anyway, waited for me to come and I said, well, my real wheel is breaking up again. You know, maybe the journey is over. But these German tourists said, no, no, I can't have that. They turned around and took me 50 kilometres back from the way that they'd come. And we're not talking about nice tar seal roads. We're talking about things that even dairy farmers wouldn't call a track. Pretty rough. Anyway, they found the only bicycle shop in town and the guy could supply us with another wheel. So that was, again, another thing that spoke to me later on, that something like that had happened. And just to make sure that we covered the distance, that gentleman in town, who was a postman, took me back to that point and let me ride in. So I did what we wanted to do, which was do everything by our own efforts and no cheating. So um, and that was one of the things. Once you got over into, Ch- into Chile, which was um, um, the southern Chile is a bit like New Zealand, no problem, but northern Chile, it's all desert, just pure desert. It hasn't rained in 400 years plus. Um, and though we had a lot of water, and there a lot of people lived there, um, water was always a problem, tending a drink was always a problem. But it was a good journey. We didn't have much trouble other than a few broken spokes and punctures along that part of the journey. Getting into Peru, um, we thought we'd take a shortcut up to Lake Titicaca, which is the largest navigable lake in the world. If there's ships on there, um, they can actually disappear over the horizon. It's so it's so big. Um, it's an amazing thing. But other than that, there's no beauty up there. But Unfortunately for us, we didn't realise that the where the road went, and it went up, it went into one valley, which is called Tarata Valley, really. And it's interesting that just out of Inglewood is a place called Tarata, but this is Tarata Valley. And and I don't know why it isn't classed as one of the wonders of the world, because all the way down the side of the mountain, it's terraced where they have water, big water canal at the top, and it terraces down and down and down, just miles and miles. And there's river, these these water canals um, have to come from 20 or 30 kilometres away and they come down and they go up the side gully and then come back out again and come down. Somebody did them hundreds of years ago and just amazing. But anyway, when we got to the bottom of the valley and we got some more supplies and we started to climb, uh, we realised why the buses don't go that way because we've got this switchback or series of switchbacks. It goes from about... Um, 2,000 metres up to six or 7,000 metres just goes up up and up to switches, switches back. It took us about three days to climb the switchbacks, climb up the road to the top. And when we got up there, we met a guy up there and he said, well, they don't have to, no army can operate up here so high so they don't have to defend the borders. So it was pretty cold, miserable. That was a hard day, well, a couple of hard days work and nosebleeds and headaches and vomiting and what happened, you get to the top of that. And we went along, we wanted to go to Machu Picchu, take our bikes to Machu Picchu. And when we got to the place where most people would get on the train to Machu Picchu, we wanted to take our bikes there. So um, we we found we couldn't go down the railway line that way. So they said, well, if you go over the mountains and come up the railway line, um, you can walk, no sweat. So that's what we did. We spent three or four days climbing the Andes, went right over the the divide where one side it was so dry that you would just you would yeah, you'd die if you stayed there. The other side it was tropical jungle and it's just this one ridge, just completely amazing. But anyway, when we got to the back down the railway line we were still forty kilometers. 
away from Machu Picchu, the same distance we left where we left the train originally. So we had to walk up the railway line. The first part of it was all right because a lot of people lived there and there was a walking trail except for the open culverts. We had to stop every 100 metres, put our bike over the culvert and ride on. When we got towards the last, say, 15 kilometres, it got narrower and narrower. And right just below Machu Picchu, we, um, there was a railway bridge. And uh, there, was no, there was a few sleepers on the bridge and then it was gapped. And we just got off the tr bridge. Train came around the corner. He wouldn't hear it coming because of the river. But we were about 30 or 40 seconds saved from getting mowed down by the train because there was nowhere to go. It would have jumped in the river and it was in full flood and they would have said bye-bye who would ever jumped in the river. <laughs> so that was that was just another one of the things. Yeah, we got out. We got up to Machu Picchu, had a good look around, um, cut the train out, of course, and then rode, rode to Lima. Um, all those parts were just, it was just hard yakking, um, up and down, up and down, because the Andes are pretty steep. Um, food was, we just didn't have enough money really for the journey, and so food was pretty hard to come by. The diet was pretty poor. Um, we got into, into Colombia, where we knew that in North Colombia and, and South Panama was what's called the Darien Gap. It's about 600 kilometres, no road. First 60 kilometres of it in in Colombia was swamp. Swamp land going into swamp. And the River Atrado, and then the rest of it was jungle to Panama. And we're having known that we were going to walk through there, we knew that it was there, it wouldn't catch us out. Um, we uh, got ourselves organised and we turned off the, off the road into the jungle. Um, of course, took all the... We took the chain rings and the pedals of our bikes to make it easy because we knew we were going to have to carry them. But the, the conditions were quite atrocious. You had to carry your pack forward, bring it back, get your bike, carry your bike forward, bring it back, get back. So every, all every distance was treble. We got to um, kilometre 41 and uh, they cut down all the trees for a road, which made us chuckle thinking they were going to put a road in there. But anyway, I think they have. But... When we got to kilometre 41, this gentleman had a farm and uh, he, his access was by dugout. And he was going to, so he paid, we paid him what we thought was an exorbitant amount of 20 US dollars. It doesn't sound much today, but it was a lot of money back in those days. Anyway, I went with him and about two o'clock in the afternoon, the outboard motor broke down and we couldn't fix it. So I said, well, I mean, it could have been here to, to you know, stand the road. Could have been five kilometres. I don't know how far it was to the shop. So I said, well, we're going to have to paddle. So at two o'clock, we started paddling. And we got to, we went out of the lake system, up the river, and it was midnight before we got to where we wanted to go. We slept on somebody's floor. In the morning, got some more groceries. Left here at 11 o'clock. Paddled and paddled and paddled and paddled and paddled and paddled all day. Across the lake system. And as we were crossing the lake system, I began to realise everything that had happened on the journey. There were so many things that had happened that you couldn't account for any other way but that somebody was looking after me. And I really felt at that time that there was a strength flowing through me that was paddling this dugout because it wasn't a pretty dugout. Anyway, we had to cross over. Grass grew over the path when we got towards home. So I had he had to push the 
grass down and I had to try and hook, paddle the dugout forward. We got back home for him at midnight again, so there was another 13 hours hard work. Beautiful, beautiful. Mm. Oh, John, that's uh, an amazing story, and um, I'm looking forward to hearing the second half of this interview. And Fano, Fano, if you haven't been told today, let me be the first. You are sincerely, you are sincerely cared for. Gorda.
Kia ora Once again, welcome. Welcome forward to Colours of the Heart. I've got John in the house, an extraordinary venture. He travelled from one end of South America to the other. Um, quite remarkable. And he did it in the 70s. And if I, my memory serves me right, no one else has done what he did and a, and, and a colleague, if, I, if I've got that right, John. So welcome, welcome, mate. You, you know, you're flowing, so yeah. you just can continue the yumminess of your journey. It's, um, it's sweetness to my ears. <laughs> yeah, hi, well, welcome. Well, not welcome, but yeah, thanks, Rex, for being here again. The um, Yeah, well, once I got back to the farm going on after the dugout trip, um, the other two had left all my gear on the logs. I mean, it, it, we're talking really rough conditions. It takes a long time to tell you, so just believe me, it was pretty rough. And I, um, so I had all this food on my back, which was about 25 kilos of food, all my gear, plus my bike sitting on the log when I got back on the trail. And so I had to try and find Ian and Gary, which had moved, who had moved on. And it took me a day and a half on my own to catch up with them. And then I actually had to go back in the second afternoon pick up something that I left behind. It took me about four hours to do two kilometres of trail because it was that's just how rough it was with trees falling down or cut down and rough stuff. But finally, at kilometre 43 and a half, the trees, jungle trees finished and we had to make our own way through. So the last 17 kilometres, we had to cut our own way through the tree, uh, through the, the um, reeds and grasses. Um, wasn't very pleasant. Uh, we found that walking backwards was a great way to go and you just had to cut it every now and again between your feet. But the ants thought that was a wonderful idea as well. So every quarter of an hour you'd have to stop and wipe the ants off. And and then, um, but yeah, and so we used to just drink the water out of the swamp because we didn't have any means to purify that much water. Um, and so we slugged on for another um, 16 days. It was um, to cover the last little bit, and we stood on the finally stood on the river on this particular day with three meals of food left. We'd winning enough money food for three meals. So, standing on the river bank, and we waved out to some folks, and they came over and they dug out from the other side, picked us up, and that's where we met the Range Rover expedition coming. They were going the other way with vehicles, so we were able to get some help from them and some supplies, some supplies from them. Um, Alan Bibby, who was a Kiwi doing the filming, gave me some army boots to replace the ones of mine that had fallen, elf, fallen apart. And then uh, later on, and about three weeks later, when we got to a small village in the, over the border into Panama, who, where there were some Wycliffe Bible missionaries doing translation work, the um, plane came down from Panama and they brought brought our mail down and brought a pack, another pack that had a frame on it, which I was able to take, and two lightweight hammocks, which any Gary could have. And so that lightened our load dramatically because, um, uh, yeah, the packs that we had, with Columbians ones, had no frame and they were very hard to handle. So I was able to carry a lot more weight because I had a frame pack and I had the army boots um, and we had the two to um, lightweight hammocks. So that was a, just another thing that happened along the way that I thought, well, somebody was looking after us. And, uh, but the night at Paya, at the village in Panama, um, we'd had sat around 
this evening after we had left Pai, I had a fire going and that was good. And so it was a bit dark and the other two got into their hammocks. And as I was getting into my hammock, there was a great crashing sound. And in the Panama jungle, trees fall all the time. So you hear this crashing sound. So for a split second or two, I didn't think much about it till I realised it was my tree that my hammock was tied to, was coming down on my head. And so I said, well, Lord, I'm coming to join you. And uh, it landed behind me. So, um, yeah, so I had a piece from then on that we were going to get out. Get out. And Gary related a little story that a boy got a bitten by the worm fly that lays a worm under the skin in, in Panama, in the jungle like that. And a little boy had one in the corner of his eye. And after they prayed about it, he come out on its own. So um, that was story Gary told us that night as well. So that just added to my realisation that uh, somebody had been looking after us all the way. It wasn't my journey. I didn't plan it. I was just the one that was on it. And so for another three months, we slogged away at the jungle. It was raining. It was muddy. We had to, quite often we had to have guides because we were, we just didn't know where to go. It just wasn't any trail that we could follow um, one time we were completely lost and we were just sitting sitting on the side of the track wondering which way to go and some some locals came out of the out of the jungle right beside us going the way we were going if they'd been another 20 meters further on the track we probably wouldn't have seen them so um yeah we, i always class them as angels so god sent three angels to to find us and help us to the nearest town um and so we just slugged on Slugged on through the worst of conditions and mud was bad. If it rained, it was good because the mud was sloppy. When it didn't rain, dried out a bit, the mud clogged up our bikes and lacted like brakes. So we had to stop and clean the bike. So it was pretty hard going, um, trying to find places to just to stop and have a drink or have a food, uh, have a feed. Um, yeah, so the last, um, yeah, it took us another two and a half months to get out of the jungle as well, pushing our way forward. But we finally, in July 1972, we got to Panama City. Um, and that's where things changed. I came home and Gary stayed on in Panama. And Ian, being the English chap that wanted to do the journey anyway, he rode on and uh, finally, after a couple of years, was able to finish the journey to Alaska. But my journey finished in Panama and I came home. Mm. Remarkable, mate. And John, what inspired you to do it in the first place? <laughs> um, well, honestly, fame and fortune. You know, we were thought, well, we'll be famous because we've done something that nobody else had done. And uh, well, surely we're going to make some money out of it. And, and if you get to Alaska, in those days, you could work in Alaska and down the salt mines and, that's a, and make a lot of money. So, yeah, it was fame and fortune, really. And... Uh, which um, proved to be quite elusive, but then I found something far better than that. You see, so, so um, that's that's been a remarkable thing for the my journey, for the journey for me as well. That I found yeah. that peace that we seek for. Mm. Well, you've talked about your faith all the way through the interview, and I and I'm really curious um, uh, in relation to um, those events that took place. But how has that changed your life? What, what, you know, the man you were and the man you are today. Could you could you talk into that? What's what's the changes, mate? Well, well, the main major changes, of course. Um, I didn't have to look for fame and fortune for for um, peace. I had a peace in my heart. Um, 
and uh, the um, um, well, I, I suppose I, I stopped swearing. One of the things that I say that in, in my logbook is that uh, you know I could turn the air as blue as anybody else when we started. In fact, the other two asked me to moderate my language. That's how bad it was. But um, and yeah, so you know, swearing was not a thing that I needed be, before. I never used to get drunk. I'd only ever been drunk twice, but I never had a desire for alcohol since then. Um, and I guess it's just um, the peace, mm. knowing that um, God is in my life and he's looking after me. And a lot of things have happened. I've had, uh, in the last 23 years, I've had seven lots of cam cancer um, treatments. So, um, you know, and I'm still here and people say, well, you're a miracle man having seven lots having had seven lots of cancer and treatment. So, yeah, um, I guess that's where I'm at. Mm. Well, I don't know how young you are, John, um, but you're a little bit older in tooth than I am, and I'm 63, and you're looking pretty good, mate. <laughs> <laughs> and I want to I wanna give your, your, your dear wife a plug, um, simply because uh, birds of a feather flock together. And uh, she's, would you like to talk about your sweetheart a little bit, if that's okay? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I guess, um, yeah, it's possibly a little bit difficult because um, Dee is my second wife, um, my first one. Uh, we had 25 years, 77 years together, but uh, health health problems caused that to break down. Um, uh, Dee came along in 1999. Um, I met her at a friend's place, and we just things just came. We just um, just knew we were together, and so we've been together ever since. Yeah, um, had a good time. She's looked after me through thick and thin with many treatments for cancer, and always been good to. Um, I've always said that she's never cooked the same meal twice, so um, it's been uh, yeah, it's been good. Well, if isn't if that isn't proof of God <laughs> and the angels. I don't know what it is. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> oh, John, I've really enjoyed our conversation. I will be asking you forward to Colours of the Heart. Thank you so much for your time and your aroha. Mm -hmm. And whānau, whānau, you have mm -hmm. been told, you are cared for. Kia ora. Thank you for your time and your ears. If you are inspired and stimulated by what has been said, you can contact me at Mountaintop Life Coaching and look forward to hearing your feedback. If you haven't been told today, let me be the first. You are cared for. Kia ora. This show was made at Access Radio Taranaki with help from New Zealand On Air. To find more local content, go to our website, accessradiotaranaki.com.